Good Morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 21st, 2021 edition of Digging Out as we collectively clear the debris from the last four days, the last four weeks, the last four years, and most definitely the last 400 years. My guest today is James Lamb, a 2020 graduate of the UC Irvine School of Law, who currently serves as a law clerk for a major Orange County criminal defense firm. I'm going to go back to a bio that I've used when James appeared on my Ask a Leader show. He was a co-president of the Society for Public Policy and Discourse at UCI Law. He brought former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords and Captain Mark Kelly, now Senator Mark Kelly, to UCI to promote common sense gun control measures in the lead up to a midterm election 2018 where I first met him and got to hear him. He was a judicial extern at the Honorable Andre Barat Jr. of the US District Court for the Central District Court of California. He worked at the Minority Inclusion Project in Connecticut designed to prepare and promote people of color to join the governing boards of Connecticut nonprofits. He blogged as a staff writer at the Nerds of Color and cut his political teeth years ago as a campaign manager for a state representative campaign in Tucson, Arizona. He comes to us today from his home. Welcome to Digging Out and back to Radio KUCI, James Lamb. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. We are taping this program on June 18th as the topic we're considered together, critical race theory, is going to still be an ongoing developing story. So why I bring James to digging out is how the media is treating critical race theory. I'm afraid they're falling down on their job and community radio is going to kick them in the butt here for trying to hold everybody accountable for doing a better job. It's a very nuanced theme. And I would like with James help for us to bring a standard by which media can cover this critical race theory and the shorthand that's being intentionally used in a weaponized form. So I would like to quote Nicole Hannah-Jones, the initiator, the founder of the project 1619 and soon to join the UNC Chapel Hill faculty. I wanna quote a tweet that I thought was compelling weight that I wanted to conduct this interview with James Lamb today, and I'm quoting her. It's a failure of journalism if stories on the critical race theory controversy do not include the factual and contextual reporting that this is a well-planned Republican misinformation strategy that nearly nothing being labeled critical race theory actually is CRT. So let's start, James. Would you give us the definition that you think captures what is an honest, a robust, a full-on understanding what critical race theory is. Certainly. The best single definition that I've found comes from Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanik's Critical Race Theory and Introduction. This is literally page three. It's a short quote, at least in text. Bear with me. The critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among racism and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, context, group and self-interest, and even feelings in the unconscious. Unlike traditional civil rights, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law, end quote. I use that definition because it's important to recognize that since the civil rights movement writ large, so 1953 on through to the early 1970s, with its movement heyday, likely in the early 60s, incrementalism was the watchword. The idea that we had to slowly but surely inch toward progress. Black people within the community oftentimes talk about getting there. 
and just, you know, you try to make sure you get us a few more steps down the road to there. That, that's the nomenclature that was used, at least in the 90s and early 2000s. What critical race theory was really saying was we need to reestablish our understanding of all of the things. There's several different schools of thought in legal academia, legal process school, legal realism, critical legal studies, and critical race theory. And in these currents and cross currents, legal scholars got together and tried to use the tools of what was established before to try to understand the world in which we were in. Oftentimes, important names like people like Kimberly Crenshaw or Derek Bell, the movement's progenitor, are brought up when talking about critical race theory. At base, critical race theory offers a set of methodologies to understand the relationship between the individual as racialized being and the law. When CRT or critical race theory was taken to other disciplines, most notably education, that has been the point where a lot of the backlash has been allowed to root. A lot of what is being bandied about today as critical race theory from backtracking dissidents on the right is nothing more than discussions around anti-racism or increased diversity and inclusion in corporate spaces or in public schools. It has very, very little to do with the scholarship created by critical race theorists since the early 1980s. We have terms like intersectionality today because of the scholarship done by women like Kimberly Crenshaw and others. But what we think of as intersectionality turns into an additive. How many immutable characteristics can I name for myself? For example, I'm a black man in America. I'm straight. I'm six feet tall. You know, all this stuff. And so what do I think of? You just add this to this to this. One plus one plus one. That's not intersectionality. Intersectionality is about what does it mean to the law that I'm a black man, six one, straight in society? There's a difference there. How does discrimination affect me because of the intersection of race, gender, and various other immutable characteristics? That is where intersectionality thrives, essentially, as a theory. It's a way to help the court understand that sometimes, for example, the easiest way to understand this is we had in discrimination law an understanding of what to do if a subject being discriminated against by a company or an employer was Black. And we have something to, to a, a set of solutions, remedies, if you happen to be a woman and we're facing discrimination. But if you were a black woman, and that was why, the court at one point didn't really understand what to do with you. That's the point of Kimberly Crenshaw's seminal work in intersectionality, to help the court understand that part, to give the analytic tools to decision makers, to appellate jurists. That's what you want from critical race theory. That's what you get from critical race theory. But the idea that helping young white kids in fifth grade understand that by virtue of the skin that they inhabit, they might benefit from some privileges, that's not really the critical race theory we're talking about. It might be an offshoot. It might be a later developed idea trying to take some of the perspectives that were first articulated in critical race theory into other realms. But to call that critical race theory is at best difficult. And so that disconnect is what Nicole Hannah-Jones is discussing, and that's why her quote is so profound. It is. And I also want to just hats off to those that were a part of the Humanities Administration in the early 90s. Kimberly Crenshaw was a part of the Humanities Institute at UCI in the early 90s. And, wow, I didn't know that. And it wow. was really, really, really rich. And she taught everybody a lot. So this definition it carries a great deal. It's carrying so much nuance. There's a huge asymmetric setup here for the right to continue to weaponize and caricature critical race theory. I guess this digging out exercise for us here, James Lamb, is how to tightly wrap what critical race theory brings and how in doing that, the exercise is worth our time and effort. It takes us out of this infantilizing, inappropriate definition that the right is using for critical race theory and 
giving everyone in our collective society an opportunity to see context and appreciate the nuance and use it. I mean, that's that's a big, heady order, but can we try to whittle that down into some pieces where we can bring to bear a definition that now we can equip media, we can equip journalists with a way to say, no, wait, I heard this used, invoked, but give them a clipboard for slowing down the weaponizing of critical race theory and saying what it can bring in its best possible contributions in civil society. That starts with specificity. So the real problem with the current media firestorm over critical race theory is that the term critical race theory is used without any notion of context. Context isn't there. It's, CRT is bandied about as the boogeyman to scare your kids at night. And that's not helpful for several reasons, but most importantly, because it tends to walk away from the specific charges laid by any number, I mean, Cheryl Harris, whiteness is property. The conversation happening, and I'm giving the broadest possible strokes here, in that article basically lays out the degree to which racial hierarchy becomes codified in law because what turns into a veritable property interest is laid in whiteness itself. And there's lots of ways to understand the effects of that kind of theory. One of the things you notice from any number of scholars dealing with wealth disparities between African-American families and white families is the degree to which you know, the average white family has a, a certain average income you know, yearly and the you know, average black family will have like 10 times less than that. And the real property differential. And there's you know, giant real property differentials there. I mean, the, the list goes on. But the question becomes what created that wealth in white families and what opportunities were denied black families to create that wealth? And we know that story. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates has literally built a career out of outlining the way in which, to your point about real property, housing discrimination, redlining has gone to allow a type of plunder of Black labor, a plunder of Black wealth, even when you're doing everything right as a Black person in the 1950s and 1960s, you can be hit with the kind of mortgage that drains your resources and gives you no equity, gives you no opportunity for your own family's economic advancement. And that's normal. And that's what happens in your community to you and everyone like you. Those are effects right. of and a the, certain type of problem. And let's talk too about, there are some sorts of addressings of this, the Department of Agriculture, that the secretary is now conducting lots of public forums to realize that differential in the resources that have been granted out with persons of color and white farmers over the years. And that that differential has been enormously lopsided. And Secretary Vilsack, he had previously held that position and he's talking to black farmers about the resources that not only were they that were not available to them, but to capture those resources now, there's a qualifier baked into their capturing those resources that they don't qualify. I mean, there's a catch-22 to how to start getting those resources availed to, to black farmers. So, I mean, in that sector, and I don't think, I mean, people are new to the redlining concept. So now, and they're getting even newer to the Department of Agriculture financing mechanisms. The question becomes, knowing the facts as we know them, not just what to do, but any reasonable academic is trying to understand the why. Why did this happen? Why is this likely to happen or continue? And then what solutions can we have for these kinds of problems? That is the essence of CRT. These are academics. We, we tend to forget this point in the way in which it is discussed by the right, especially, but also by the news media. But really, we're talking about academics trying to understand the why of things. The effects of a kind of plunder of Black wealth in this society manifest in every sector of the society, from our farmers to our lawyers to our doctors to everyone else. From the professional to the blue collar, we see the effects of a kind of white supremacist hierarchy on everything. 
And we have any number of people coming from any number of places around the world who enter into the society and also deal with that prevailing schema such that they themselves try to find a place to exist within that. The point with all of this is trying to understand the why is what critical race theorists do. And the outlook that they might have that's a little perhaps less incrementalist and much more foundational is the kind of outlook you would want if your job is to understand the why of things and not necessarily to always be on the front line of advocating or legislating change. But the difficulty that we're seeing now is a backlash politics that has been metastasized to the point where, yes, even white people can see it, to put it bluntly, and you have a number of people who don't happen to be people of color who are responding negatively to that example. I bring this up, but only because it's an interesting case for me. A couple years oh, please. ago- Please, it's helpful. A couple of years ago, there was a young woman involved in counter-protesting at a Trump rally. This was news in this area. This was you know, in a Trump rally held in Huntington Beach. And at the rally, she found herself in an altercation with a white supremacist. The interesting part isn't the, that example, that altercation. That kind of thing happens at certain kinds of rallies between people. She, yes, was a member of Antifa, and he, yes, was a white supremacist, and they had a conflict that was physical. But the interesting part for me was the case itself. Because in this case, because of the type of legal representation she had, not from my firm, um, uh, she had a, a lawyer who was not able to get the court to recognize that the complaining witness in this situation, she was accused of misdemeanor battery. The complaining witness was this white supremacist, but he was able to be presented by the prosecution as simply a Trump supporter, full stop. This man was muscular, blonde haired, blue eyed, at least 6'2". He was a member of the what builds itself as the premier mixed martial arts club for white supremacists. He was a member of the Rise Above movement. And all of that information, the fact that he and his compatriots came to the rally not to support their adoration or, or, or for President Trump, but rather to engage in violence against counter-protesters. That was their stated goal announced ahead of time on social media. And they did exactly that. This one particular complaining witness, mere seconds after the altercation with the young woman, pummels a photojournalist for nothing. Just like, this is all on video, all document. The law, in order to understand misdemeanor battery, gives you as a citizen an opportunity to say, well, why did you do this? And if you claim self-defense, part of our understanding of self-defense, it's basic self-defense law, is can we get into your head? Can we understand what you were thinking when you physically assaulted X person? And as jurors, as triers of fact, can't understand what the defendant was thinking. What we have to go on is the facts of what they did. So a self-defense defense is much easier if we can understand the context around why the violent action was employed by the defendant. Context matters. But in this person's trial, presenting the complaining witness as just a Trump supporter meant that if you were on the jury, if you were one of the trials of fact there, you could not understand why this person hit this Trump supporter. The idea of experiencing threat from a Trump supporter was not facially, obviously beyond the pale. Well, wait, say, one, and one more and one point though too that maybe as evidence was this this is during the pandemic and a lot of people in Huntington Beach they were on brand by not wearing masks so this person could be assaulting her with a possible viral infection. There's any number of things, but I mean, but you, you're, right. you're five two, you're you're maybe a hundred pounds. I don't know. You're facing off against a guy who like spends his time and energy beating up his friends to practice. And I'm a big fan of mixed martial arts. Don't get me twisted. I think it's a wonderful sport, but there's a reason certain people do that. We should be very honest about ourselves. And especially if your stated goal is a kind of 
disdain for anyone who happens to have more melanin than yourself. Like this, this person, the complaining witness, was there to commit acts of violence and did so. There is no rationale under which we should pretend that a self-defense strategy from a defendant who's you know, accused of accosting this person should not include the fact this guy was like throwing Hail Hitler signs up and shouting and standing next to anti-Semitic signs. But all that stuff was washed out of the case. CRT would argue, critical race theory would argue that there's no meaningful way that the criminal case against this young woman should go forward without that other important information. That's what critical race theory does. It gives us analytic tools to understand the world around us. That's the bare bones part of it. And if news journalists are not talking about critical race theory in those terms, they are, yes, doing the work of the backlash right, which has used literally everything. Critical race theory might be more investigative or some might even deride it as navel-gazing than, say, ethnic studies programs or discourses or, earlier than that, civil rights discourse. But backlash against all of those discourses as being beyond the being the kind of thing that patriotic Americans should shun and abhor, that has been happening since antiquity. In this country, if you were in the 1960s and you were supportive of the civil rights movement, you were a radical, you were a subversive, you were a Marxist, and you were not supposed to be among polite society. And that was the nice version in comparison to what they're saying now. Right. Let me just introduce you for anybody who's just joined us. My guest is UCI Law School graduate James Lamb. He works for an Orange County public defender firm. He's cracking wide open and unlayering the claims and actual theory of critical race theory. It's really a helpful tool, having one of the much needed conversations about power and whether and how we can get the media to to move this needle. So I'm not trying to be overly simplistic, but now we, we know that the media, they run on a really short, sort of time frame. They're not known for spending and opening, peeling layers back. But if in the time they are spending in this coverage, if there is a way they can at least come to sort of the origin of the origin story of the news item they're talking about, instead of the sort of the sensational details, maybe the origin of the narration details. You know, I'll say it this way. Given the death of George Floyd, the death of Breonna Taylor, the death of Ahmaud Arbery, and any number of other young Black men and women, we've seen a American electorate primed at this point to engage stories about Black degradation, both at the hands of municipal law enforcement and at the hands of, of individual citizens. Those stories are prime. If it bleeds, it leads, and Black death is always good for a moment. To give that side of the community, the blood running on the street corners, the I can't breathe slogans because a man has been literally choked to death or watch the breath leave his body after over nine minutes of force against his back. If we're able to sensationalize our headlines and keep people tuned in to our news broadcasts with images of black death ad nauseum, over and over and over again, as if we can all become numb to this certain type of degradation for these certain type of people. The very least we can do is engage our scholars, our academics, our activists, people who employ CRT in their analytical lives. I think of Karen Gustafson at UCI Law, who teaches courses in critical identity theory and in understanding criminal law. And one of the more interesting elements of her scholarship has been around the Fourth Amendment and how legal scholars tend to really care about searches and seizures when it comes to our technological lives. The way in which police officers will, or more importantly, Border Patrol and, and immigration officials will confiscate laptops, uh, cell phones. Look well, one through... moment, one moment to that point, when, what current works on in the uh, search and seizure. So. It doesn't seem like a stretch and a, a burden on a journalist to talk about what the true meaning of pulling over a motorist while black with an air freshener hanging from their rearview mirror. 
I mean, it's it was brought up over and over without a single sort of critical take on. That's the MO, that's how you stop black motorists on the side of the road. I mean, it is an easy way to break down. That's a tactic that's used and it's got nothing to do with obscuring views in the rearview mirror and white people are never have that that kind of search started with that pretense. It's fair to, to say that there are in the aggregate meaningful material differences in treatment experienced by citizens. But we only know anything about those differences, like the like the stat you just raised, because of critical race theorists. Like they are the ones who engage that empirical work. I mean, but it's not buried that deep. I mean, that there are retrievable comebacks our journals could use to ex to explain that in a story they're covering. The point here on the journalists is that truth itself is not a burden, but truth is complicated. I mean, one of the ways in which I think, I mean, to the earlier point about Professor Gustafson's work. Yes. It's easier for a journalist to understand the implications on privacy in the confiscation of a laptop or, or a cell phone because they use laptops and cell phones in their daily lives, in their professional lives. You're talking about a profession where in order to get anywhere in the profession, people come from the nation's top institutions of higher learning. They go to work for corporate spaces that need viewers more than they need truth. And everyone around them looks just like them in the aggregate. The expectation that somehow the inherent whiteness of journalism is going to understand stories that are about being a person of color is a little bit unfair to everybody involved. And it's not as if we don't have a long history of really amazing work by journalists of color, but these are the people who are hired last, fired first, and are few and far between when they're there. Like in every other facet of our society, the racism that we all are socialized into is both cause and effect. What I'm suggesting at this point is truth itself requires complexity. And so much about being a journalist in modern America is about giving the quickest possible story, anecdote usually, horse race discussion in, in political circles, that isn't about truth or understanding, it's just about the story, what I can sell. And I'm not trying to denigrate journalists here, but I'm just being honest about the burden that they carry. Truth itself is not a burden, but truth is complicated. And well, I'm gonna denigrate them because of the, how earnestly they they comport themselves and they're so-called covering it. And they have, right, I, I, I am gonna be more critical. Well, I think we can be critical with understanding yeah, because yeah. some of the times the people who are critiquing critical race theory aren't the usual suspects on the right. It's not always Tucker Carlson. Oftentimes it's the black academic whose moderate to conservative racial views provide nothing but question marks for the journalists trying to cover it. If you look at the writing and the public statements, the podcasts around people like Glenn Lowry of Brown University or John McWhorter, I believe he's at Columbia most recently, these are guys who are dedicated both to black uplift and approaching race from arguably a right of center point of view. And their perspectives often conflict with the anti-racist activists of today. I mean, Ibram X. Kendi or Nicole Hannah-Jones don't find themselves very often confronted with the views of guys like John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry because the John McWhorters and Glenn Lowry's of the world are saying to them, I am black and I disagree with all of the stuff that you're doing because of substantive disagreements and cosmetic ones. I mean, case in point, one of the things you normally hear about critical race theory is its effect on our schools, whether public or private. Right, that's where it's getting dragged right now, yeah. Exactly, and all the ways in which attempts at CRT make life harder for earnest young white kids who don't have a, a racist bone in their bodies. Well, I'm a parent, and experiencing that over the last few years, I was not prepared as a black man for the way in which race was going to be front and center in how my child dealt with the world and how I dealt with my child in the world as a parent. You go to these spaces, these wonderfully manicured lawns in Irvine, California, you have interactions with other parents of young children and you watch those interactions and it will be your brown child 
your mixed race child and a sea of white faces her age. And then you'll see children be negative to each other. You'll see the way that some children are ostracized. You'll see the way that young children handle human difference. It's not always a Hallmark card. And there are times where what you'll see can only be reasonably interpreted as a racial incident. And because you approach all of this as a Black parent with your four decades of critical race understanding, there are times when you're looking around the other white parents around you and wondering why they're not as upset as you are over the treatment their children inflict. It's a hard conversation because someone at some point has to do two things at once. They have to accept that their children who they consider innocent are capable of racial harm and they have to accept the teaching that they've done to ward off such evils with their children hasn't worked. And in the meantime, all you're thinking about is your mixed race black child and how her little mental sky can be harmed by the whiteness around her. Critical race theory offers an opportunity to interrogate that, and yet we don't hear about that. All we hear about are these so-called white victims of the latest diversity initiative that helps white kids try to understand their place as white citizens in this society and how much damage that can do to their patriotism or their understanding of themselves in the world. Like and their you, mental skies are somehow harmed by the privilege they enjoy. And That's and the problem with the journalists today. They're not taking on the entire truth just the one that's most suits someone's interest. And I'm going to have to own that school setting that uh, in the later period, if yours are now, one of yours is in the preschool level and I'm not going to personalize anymore because I respect the family's privacy, but I can say that much, correct? That's fine. So there came a very, very fraught stretch where one of mine was in middle school and there was a new black child, a black girl that came to the campus. So I was, I failed in my role to, uh, to participate in something that got from bad to worse to awful. And I have to this day to, to make amends, pay forward, pay backward to uh, about what happened. I, it's hard to know with, uh, with adolescence. This is critical race theory was the manual I needed in that moment it, and, that, and that stretch. But there are adolescents that are being adolescents and they're, they're with or without the race aspect going on. It's all, they've been messy since their very beginning of their primary school days. And so it is like now they're professional messy. <laughs> they're in middle school. And they, they dealt out a really uh, terrible dynamic. And I, I, um, I have to own that while you bring that up. And, and my, my uh, radio listeners, I don't make the radio platform about me, but I, I have to come and acknowledge my role in my, and my shortcomings in that part. And I'm still, I am trying to, to belatedly, uh, the, the last server was trying to, to find that family, they, they left the school. I mean, it was bad. And I, uh, I know, I know once some of my motivations, they'll remain uh, with uh, private with me, but I still did not operate as I should have with critical race theory as a guiding principle in that situation. I was a classic white parent, James, and I'm owning it now. I'm owning it with you and with listeners, it's, and it's, it, it, it's very, very messy. And, but we're, we're talking about journalist roles, but you mentioned the school setting and what your, your offspring are facing increasingly, and it's gonna get worse, it's gonna get harder. And Irvine has a lot of work to do. And you know, we, thought we, were, uh, we thought we were pretty you know, remarkable citizens. You know, that, that's our problem, that, that yeah. So, well, so I'm, I'm gonna disagree there. I, the point is that we are. The point is that we actually are remarkable citizens and remarkable citizens have these problems too. The, the, the reasonable point here is that critical race theory is not a manual. It is not a how-to. It is not like, it's not going to self, it's not self-betterment. These are nothing more than analytical tools and interrogations on the world around us. That's really it. We start getting into the how-to stuff when you bring up guys like 
Ibram X. Kendi and how to be an anti-racist in the books around that. Robin DiAngelo's White Privilege text. Like those are books that are trying to give mostly white audience members an opportunity to become better people in air quotes by virtue of following their precepts. And I'll be very, very blunt about this. That is not CRT. That is not critical race theory. And it's a material difference. Critical race theory is about interrogation. There's an oft-beloved and very much still taught idea in constitutional law called neutral principles. This is, this is uh, Herbert Wexler, neutral principles in constitutional law, toward neutral principles. The, the important point of it is if you're going to do appellate jurisprudence and you're going to overturn laws, use the most powerful piece in the arsenal the judiciary has, judicial review, to overturn the will of our legislature. You have to base the rationale for that use of inherently anti-democratic power in something basic to the country, a neutral principle. It's at the heart, frankly, of a lot of our decisions on race and discrimination. Right. The Baki case, for example. Oh, yes. Uh, in admissions, if for those who are not aware of that, it was in the University of Davis. The University of California versus Baki from the early 1970s is the case that deals with affirmative action. And it's the fulcrum between the original policy rationales for affirmative action, which were in many ways recompense for past wrongs against minority citizens, to the diversity rationale that we've sort of dealt with ever since. Basically, we can justify a use of race in college admissions if the use of race is in many ways neutral, no quotas, and there to promote diversity in the student body. That's a very like thousand foot view uh, on that case, but those are the, uh, the brass tacks. The, the reason I bring that up is that that case is decided through the use of neutral principles theory, legal process theory, in that particular uh, example of the Supreme Court's uh, jurisprudence. The deciding jurist there, the person who wrote the decision, was literally looking for a way to parse the claims about past wrong and discrimination between racial and ethnic groups and decided that he couldn't. That there wasn't a material way he could understand the differences in the treatment of say, the Polish or the Irish or the German American citizens and- or the Jewish. Yeah. Or the Jewish and like African-American citizens, Chicano citizens, Chinese Americans or Japanese Americans. Like from this jurist perspective, there was no way to make those comparisons make sense. There was no neutral basis upon which those claims were justified. So you couldn't use recompense for past wrongs as a way to justify the particular schema around admissions that was being used by the University of California Medical School, you know, Davis at the time. Yeah. The reason that's important is that if you're operating from many different perspectives in uh, popular in society today, there would be a material difference. I mean, if you benefited from the GI Bill, if you benefited from various like housing laws in, you know, mid 20th century, if you were able to gain wealth, in, in post-war America because of your whiteness and your work, that's one experience you and your family may have had. If you were locked out of all of those things by law and by custom, that's another. That would be a way to discuss the, the relative discrimination that various groups and those individuals in those groups have faced. If you're not willing to employ that, what we're doing is flattening those experiences. We're saying that this is just an experience over here if you are Irish. Here's an experience over here if you happen to be a descendant of slaves. And never the two shall meet. It's all flat. It's all immaterial to the real discussion. And that works a certain way in favor of certain folk and against certain folk. You can tell by looking at them, yes. <laughs> so, so the bottom line of this is critical race theory gives us an opportunity and the tools by which we can interrogate why these cases are decided this way and what all that means for the individual citizen dealing with the law today. It's not a manual, there isn't a right answer, which is where I depart from all the Abram X. Kendi's and Robin DeAngelo's of the world because they're out there telling white people, here's the right answer, do these things and you are not racist. 
is playing, frankly, on white guilt. And it's not helpful because it takes away the analytical person and their ability as individuals to decide what is the right, just, normatively sound way I should view working in my job, dealing with my children, dealing with my children's friends who, all, who don't look like any of us. What you want to be able to do is empower citizens to make their own decisions, to decide for themselves what's reasonable, to allow people to disagree. That's what CRT does. And that's why the stuff going on or being bandied about as CRT, as critical race theory, is anything but. So I guess I'm not trying to, it's not an argumentative tack, but I, I think though, with considering critical race theory and opening up to seeing what I'm seeing in a different way, I mean, that, that's why I guess I use the manual idea is that I realize my role in something. I realize my underestimating, my dismissing, my erasing, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm making so many choices. The critical race theory is giving me a way of seeing through, seeing how shallow those choices are and to deepen my, my engagement in any, in any direction. In and any that's completely instance. valid. That's completely valid. I just find it interesting that in the present moment, after social media, after the extended indulgence in black death by our news media, in the pretense of informing us about the wrongs black people face, that the same news media that has profited so much from images of my fellow Americans slaughtered by the state, that these same people have such a hard time, such difficulty taking on the actual work critical race theorists have done. Our understanding, my understanding personally of the way in which implicit bias affects police officers would not be where it is today if not for Song Richardson, the former dean of the UC Irvine Law School. Like her work in not just understanding the science behind implicit bias, but also finding an application for those scientific advances in interrogating how police officers actually deal with people in real time. It was, I thought I understood that. No, the research helped me get there. Her research, Song right. Richardson's research. If I want to think about how Black feminism has informed not only how I view the world, but also how I view welfare policy or the way in which, example, being a parent, it's a bandied about statement today, often used, Black women have higher maternal mortality rates than other groups. They're oftentimes not encouraged to breastfeed children in ways that women from other groups are. And then my wife and I had children and my wife is not Black. And the treatment from doctors, nurses, experiencing that in real time, I can see why those statistics happen to black women now in ways that I did not understand before. Or and why the, the opioid crisis has disproportionately affected persons of color because of the perceptions of healthcare delivery that have deprived a healthcare safety net to address addiction in the black demographic. Versus well, that's white just it. In ways in which Black drug use was and is criminalized in ways that we don't see that occurring when the user is white. The way in which opioid misuse or crystal methamphetamine misuse is sometimes criminalized, but oftentimes drug treatment services and compassion and all. It's not enough to recognize the difference. It's not enough to say, I see a difference between how Black people are treated and how everyone else is treated. That's not good enough. Understanding the why of that is what we should do if we're telling ourselves that our professional lives as individuals requires us to pursue truth. If you're a criminal defense attorney, part of your job is telling the truth about your client's experience to a jury and to let the jury decide what truth is. If you are a journalist, your job is to provide truth to people. Truth can be complex, it can be hard to understand, but that's what you're there to do. And if you're not interested in engaging that work, find something else to do with your life. Like that's, that's how it has to be. Because when we allow the right, 
who takes issue with anything that exalts difference. We allow those people to define what critical race theory is and they take the most outlandish examples. Here's, here's the thing that I think we need to really like go into. If your job is like Ibram X. Kendi to give you a manual as a white person for how to view the world, interact with it, to be anti-racist, this inexorably good thing. The why of that isn't important. Well, here's just a, a new set of rules. And so you have people who take those rules and to go into their professional life as educators, as any number of things, and try to implement them. And that's where the backlash really starts. This is why the discussions around critical race theory supposed influence over our nation's schools, this is why this is important. Because it's not like people are getting any of this right. I'm not suggesting that every high school administrator who wants people to take an ethnic studies class is doing a bad thing. But certainly every example of the ethnic studies class and every example of the diversity day at a school isn't going to be the most enlightening possible thing for all people concerned. But the point is people are going to make mistakes with this stuff. There was a time when there were people who were willing to defend the use of quotas in higher education. Quotas actually were a bad thing. It wasn't about the individual at that point. It was about filling seats with a certain kind of person. You want a holistic system of admissions where the total person is taken into account. And then we can decide from actually getting meaningful information about individuals, what kind of diverse class of students we want to create for whatever endeavor in our school. Like that is reasonable about the individual's perspective. We don't get to that point if there isn't conflict and mistake and trial and error and a whole host of other concerns besides. The right is always, frankly, going to have a reason to call foul at every measure designed to increase the visibility and the professional lives of people of color in this society. If you're going to be a neutral arbiter looking at these issues, if you're going to be a journalist trying to report on these issues especially, the goal is to actually pursue truth and to pursue the complexity thereof to call out things that don't work and to call out the nice white parents who don't want them to work. Both are part of the story. Calling them out, yeah. So I always come back with these kinds of conflicts is that there's a, a real infantilizing process underway. And when I'm speaking now of a generation older than you are, James, and more and more of us as we're getting more and more really interesting history lessons. And that's the critical race theory is context, it's history, it's background, it's nuance. And we're learning now, we're, we're all frankly a very, very resentful and bitter demographic that we didn't get to learn this earlier. Yeah, I hear that. It, it's always a little bit, I mean, this is just a difference of experience. There are things that happen if you're of a certain generation or of a certain race that tend not to happen to me. Like I always knew about Tulsa. Black Wall Street was discussed in hushed tones at my earliest memories. And I'm not like when from... you're working on homework over <laughs> dinner at the playground at the on the, the right. car ride on the summer vacation. When was it? How would it be brought up? A lot of this stuff would happen at my dinner table growing up. In, okay. in Portland, Virginia. Like that, that's just where this was. One of my earliest memories was helping my dad drop off leaflets to black voters so they could go out on election day and support L. Douglas Wilder, the first black man elected oh, yes. governor of a Southern state after reconstruction. Like doing that in Virginia with my dad is one of the base reasons why I'm so interested in politics now. And what it meant wasn't just the activity. It meant the conversation around why it was important. Like, oh, yes, it was compelling as all get out. My understanding of states' rights and federalism in part comes from my political science background at Cornell, but it mostly comes from my father because states' rights was in many ways the bandied about term, I'm saying that too much, used to justify reluctance to civil rights from white voters in Southern states. That was the shorthand, right? That was the shorthand, states' rights. Because it's Lee Atwater um, speaking on camera before he died. Like you, At a certain point, you just can't use the N-word and say, don't vote for these people or don't, don't vote for this candidate. 
because people become immune to that charge. So you have to dog whistle to get the same kind of point without running afoul of mainstream respectability. What we've seen in the last few years under the, the, the previous president was the dismantling of the dog whistle rhetorical strategy from conservative politicians. Because at a certain point, it wasn't good enough to keep a certain kind of lower information, low educational attainment, low income white voter voting for the Republican Party, nationally or locally. At a certain point, to reach those people, you had to engage in a certain kind of overt white supremacist rhetoric, an overt racist rhetoric, in order to keep people invested. And this is a failure of the journalism happening from our, our more political journalists nationally and otherwise. The rhetorical gymnastics employed to pretend somehow that the National Republican Party is not a white grievance party, is not a white identity party, is not the alt-right itself. Simone Biles would be jealous. There's something fundamentally misaligned there. You don't get to a Mitch McConnell of all people speaking out against the use of critical race theory, speaking out against the 1619 Project, saying, no, 1619 isn't important to the country's founding. It's 1776. My people would not be in this country were it not for the success of for the slave owners of 1619. To act as if... 1619 isn't important, is to say in a really upfront and no uncertain terms manner that Black people are simply not important to the founding of the country. That's well, and, what McConnell's position is. And to say then, in the same token, and to bookend and say it all ended in 1865. Those problems were. So, right. we should, so it's sort of like really, really bracketing a tight, it's like a tight strike zone that's where you can really talk about institutions that are being fundamentally built and baked into our social consciousness. Absolutely. And there are any number of voices from Tim Scott, the, uh, the Senator of South Carolina Republican, to others, to the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, who will come out in, in, in a straight face and say, America is not a racist country. And they are more than welcome to reassure white people of that. I, I have no issue. Enjoy yourselves. Have fun. But what we're talking about at a certain point is Mitch McConnell appealing to conservative white voters in his home state by speaking against the very existence of Black people or Black concerns as important. And then Black politicians from various sectors of the left-right spectrum saying in the same breath, but we're not a racist country, to reassure those same voters that they are completely justified in their opposition to difference. You don't get a way to really interrogate that. I'm a broken record today, but it's fine without things like critical race theory. But it's the interrogation that critical race theory informs. What to do with that knowledge is a different space. No, it's not a broken record thing. It's a, it's a rolling, peeling back the rhetoric that's obscuring the value of critical race theory, James. I, I know you know that, so I'm not, I'm not going to let you call yourself a broken record on this. And I'm trying to figure out how we can close this with, I really do, in, in holding media accountable in doing their job, because this is only, actually, this, this stretch is just the start. We're going to be hearing this critical race theory will be the socialism boogeyman for the midterm elections. It's the shorthand. It's going to only increase in intensity. Let's close with any compact tool you would offer journalists as they continue to cover the midterm election process now underway. We, we know what's in the, the playbook, the in election integrity and critical race theory and, and transgendered bathrooms. I mean, that's, I can't imagine anything more is gonna be brought into the midterm elections, which, so I don't know if you, James Lamb, have a way of either equipping a journalist or a, a consumer of journalism to beat back an oversimplification with a response. My, my succinct version of that would be Avoid the zero sum hierarchy. Oh, I always, I always do that on my shows. I always, but it, yeah, that's, and, and it's still, I have tried with a very sophisticated public 
to explain zero sum. And they, James, they could, they just couldn't do it. Well, I'll, I'll try my hand at it right now. And this is informed in part by the, the new book from Heather McGee, The Sum of Us, What yes. Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. But she opens The Sum of Us with a discussion of what's known as the drain pool problem. Really quickly, 1950s America, post-war America, you had all these municipalities that had these large extravagant public pools. When court cases brought by black litigants suggested that the segregated pools should be desegregated, instead of maintaining those pools and their opulence, any number of locales decided to just drain the pool. Like swimming with black children was simply so abhorrent that we just, we can't have a nice pool now. We just have- We can't have nice things, yeah. Exactly, we can't have nice things. And there's a way of covering stories like that today or stories around conservative anger towards critical race theory that don't let us interrogate how certain groups of American citizens think that any advancement that must be shared with or exposes the benefits toward people of color must be a loss of white influence, a loss of white power, a loss of white wealth. That is the problem. Because we can have a conversation in the abstract about neutral principles theory versus a kind of critical race appellate methodology. (laughs) And that can be fine for the academics three to a room. Right. And I'm trying to bring us to this very pedestrian crowd. I need a really, really, really. But that just means you're democratizing the conversation. And that's what we should all strive toward, democratizing the conversation. But every conversation we're seeing in news media today about voting rights and the way in which working on specious and completely inaccurate information, Republican-led state legislatures are taking away voting rights from American citizens who happen to be disproportionately brown, black, Asian American, urban, et cetera. Like that entire dynamic really needs to be interrogated through the lens of the zero sum hierarchy and how that needs to be avoided. That alone would allow more complexity, less simplicity, and more of an opportunity to directly deal with the kind of stuff actual critical race theory was talking about. I mean, when I read Cheryl Harris for the first time, when I read Mario Barnes for the first time, the dean of the University of Washington Law School and my former professor in constitutional law discussing the way in which scrutiny levels from the Supreme Court affect certain kinds of race cases, it opened my eyes to the understanding that in order to do legal work, I had to be willing to interrogate all sides of a problem, not just those that were more commonly associated with my own thinking. I have to give, as a scholar, credence to the notion because it's just true, but not everybody gets anti-racism right. Not everybody has the right answer that even the act of trying to teach people how to be anti-racist itself is a kind of framing that works against meaningful policy change. Sorry, Ibram Kendi, it's true. That, <laughs> that dynamic allows me as a scholar to interrogate the why of things. And that's the essence of being human. What I think is most problematic when journalists especially want to do the horse race stuff in politics. That's usually it. We, we see a racist law come down or we see Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema, Senator of Arizona say, I would prefer the filibuster and the rights of the minority in the Senate chamber to express its will over legislation than to provide the rights of minority citizens around the country to express their will toward their elected officials and who they want to see in office representing them, making policy for them. The privileging of the Senate chamber and its inherent wealth and whiteness over the rights of minority citizens to have some say in who governs them around the country that dynamic needs to be interrogated through the lens of the zero-sum hierarchies that the people on the right and among the whites use to take the rights away from everyone else. That is alone. If you read Heather McGee, who doesn't say any of this, mind you, but I'm just I'm riffing off of her. Like, if you read Heather McGee and you're interested in drain pool politics and the way in which white citizens will harm themselves to spite Black people, then you have to be interested in critical race theory and what it actually does, the methodological frameworks we can apply to understand the laws that govern us and how it affects us as individual citizens and as members of groups.
that is real journalism. That's getting the story right, which is supposed to be what they want. Well, on that note, that is where we will put this on a pause and maybe we can visit some digging out as things go nuts in the midterm election primary season, which is about a half a year away. We're not that far away from it yet. James Lamb, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. We appreciate the time. My guest was James Lamb, 2020 graduate of UC Irvine School of Law, currently serving as a law clerk for a major Orange County criminal defense firm, talking today about critical race theory, how the media can do its job covering that as this concept continues to be a force in American politics in this electoral season. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.